Hello church, you can open to Acts chapter 2. We have read this passage already this morning and we're going to read it again. This is Pentecost Sunday and it's good to see this twice. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It's the Word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said that they are filled with new wine. And so Lord, we pray that even though they mocked with that phrase, new wine, Lord, there was a sense in which you were even sighing through their mockery. And you were bringing new wine. And so, Lord, we pray that you would let us know what your Spirit says to the church today. We pray that you would make known what your Spirit has done in the church. We pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, we pray this not be a mere history lesson with what Pentecost was, but that You would show us our need for the Spirit even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You want to bring me up that old? I won't break everybody's eardrums this morning if this thing keeps popping. All right, there we go. Well, it is Pentecost Sunday, and um, we don't do this every year. We have done this occasionally, uh, but feel it necessary this year to study Pentecost because we're, we're freshly coming out of a time of studying the resurrection, and um, it just feels appropriate to come off the heels of that and, and to look at what God has done in bringing the Spirit to the church and how that relates to us today. You know, this is, this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, I won't mention all of them, but I think the one thing I want to mention is a reason why this is important to study is because of this explosion of what we might call neo-Pentecostalism or charismatic theology that's really taken the world over. 
Uh, it's not only in our country, but in all developing countries, uh, South America, especially Africa, India, many parts of Asia. And there's more and less concerning uh, parts of that movement. And, and the only reason I want to bring it up is just to say that every church, including ours, uh, need, needs to form our understanding of the Holy Spirit not from what we see happening or not see happening, not from our own experiences, but from what Scripture teaches. And so we need to continually go back to the Scriptures and ask questions like, who is the Spirit of God? How has He worked throughout history? And, and in particular, what happened at Pentecost? What does the Bible actually say about these things? And, and it would be wrong of us to drop down into a New Testament passage and only try to grab out the meaning from that particular passage without a larger context. We need to move back to the Old Testament and get the whole context uh, of Pentecost. And so here's how I want to do that today. I want to look at uh, this in three parts. Pentecost desired, uh, Pentecost prophesied or promised, and then Pentecost fulfilled. Um, and so we'll, we'll walk through each of those. Let's start with Pentecost desired. I hate that I have to say this, um, but it is, uh, it, there's enough bad teaching out there that I feel it, it necessary to, to start by saying this. In the Old Testament, the only way that a person actually could become a believer was by being born again of the Spirit of God. We, we need to understand that. People were not saved in the Old Testament apart from the Spirit of God. It, it is not that just in the New Testament, people must be born again, or they must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is true also in the Old Covenant. And so any believer in the Old Covenant, it is because the Spirit of God granted them the ability to believe and to obey and to be God's people in a genuine way. And so in the Old Testament, fillings of the Spirit for ministry only occurred within isolated individuals. So we see uh, the prophets at times being filled with the Spirit of God for their work. We see the judges, like uh, uh, we, we could look at Gideon or, 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 or Samson, uh, that were filled with the Spirit for a particular task and a particular moment in history. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon them and, and I think that the, 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 the person who had a more charismatic filling, if we could call it that, in the Old Testament more than anyone else was Moses. Uh, Moses was a man filled with the Spirit. This man couldn't lift his arm without help. He could not speak without help. He was not a gifted man. In, in, in many ways, we might consider that. But his gifting or his empowerment for miracles, for leadership, for the mediatorial work that he would do, was the Spirit of God. And even with a man like Moses, who was so empowered by the Spirit, here's what happened to him, like happens to all of us. He got tired. He got tired of the work God gave him to do. He had a difficult task. He had a people who were complaining, who were murmuring, and he was tired of leading Israel uh, to the point, many of you remember in uh, Numbers 11, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had to actually come to Moses in his point of discouragement and say, you're trying to do too much. This is not wise what you're doing, Moses. You need to appoint other men to help you. 
And so God revealed these things uh, to Moses. Moses wrestled with, uh, with the Lord about these things, and, and Moses complained to the Lord, they, you've given them manna, they have to eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they're sick of it. Uh, these people, I, if you love me, Lord, kill me. And the Lord did love him, but the Lord did not kill him. The Lord said, I will speak to you. And he told him, appoint 70 men and some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, I will put on them. Some of the spirit that is on Moses would now be moved to these 70 others with Moses. And so Moses went and reported to Israel that this would happen and when he did, there was one man in particular who was, uh, who was bothered by this, uh, Joshua, one of his right-hand men, uh, I think was jealous for Moses' sake and thought that it was a, an attempt to kind of undermine Moses' authority and said, let it not be. He said, my Lord forbid them, to which Moses replied to Joshua, and this is why I'm bringing this up regarding Pentecost. Moses responded, are you envious for my sake, Joshua? Would that God put His Spirit on all God's people. That's the desire for Pentecost. Well over a thousand years before Pentecost. Out of the mouth of Moses, would that God put His Spirit on all God's people. And that desire from Moses quickly turns into a prophecy or a promise, which is the next thing to see here. Joel 2 Verse 28 says this, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. So not just Moses or the prophets. On all flesh I will pour out my Spirit. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Also on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. That's a promise from God through the prophet Joel. And you say, well, how do we know that Joel is prophesying about Pentecost? How do we know this is actually about Pentecost? Well, because at Pentecost, Peter stands up to preach. And what does Peter say? What's happening right now is a fulfillment of Joel. And the prophet Joel predicted these things that you were seeing with your own eyes and hearing with your own ears. Now, here's something additional I want to add here, because sometimes we can forget this, is that Jesus himself prophesied or promised Pentecost. Uh, He did this in a few places. John 14 and 16, uh, the night before his death in the upper room, which isn't an insignificant location because that was likely uh, where Pentecost occurred, And in that upper room, Jesus said to his disciples, when I leave, I am sending to you the paraclete. The paraclete, that's the Greek. Uh, The ESV translates it helper. The KJV translates it comforter. Um, We're trying to work with a a word, uh, a Greek word that's being used here that is not the English and we can't we're not our our best attempts don't get at it. So the term comforter isn't great. the 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 translation from the Greek parakletos is the Greek word there, and it goes back to Elizabethan English back when uh, English was more rooted in Latin. 
And so the translation comforter had roots in the Latin comforte. Now, any of you who, um, who are familiar with music, forte uh, is a, uh, a, a term you'll know because the little f or the double f uh, when you're reading music uh, indicates that you should press harder. You should, you should with strength, emphasize that note. Uh, cum forte, uh, power, strength. And so that's what's behind this promise from the Father. It isn't, uh, Jesus isn't saying, hey, once I leave, I'm sending a, a, a comforter who's going to emotionally comfort you. Now, the Holy Spirit does that, but that's not the promise. It isn't that he's going to dry their tears with this comforter that's coming or this helper. It's that he's promising cum forte. There's, there's, a, there's a, a force, a power coming. And you say, well, how do we know that's what he's really promising? Well, we can cross-reference this with some other things Jesus said. In Luke 24, we see the same emphasis on power when he said, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he tells the disciples, tarry in Jerusalem, stay in the city until you are what? Clothed with power from on high. That's the promise. Wait in Jerusalem until the power comes. Acts chapter 1, verse 5 to 8, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait or tarry for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then right after that, listen to what he says. Jesus said this to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And church, those are just words unless they happen. And that leads to the third point, the fulfillment of Pentecost. What happened that day was a historical fulfillment of prophecy that cannot be perfectly replicated. I want to be very clear about that. We're not having another Pentecost in this sense. Pentecost means 50th day. That's what it means, because it's 50 days after the Passover. It's often called the Feast of Harvest. And that's what Pentecost is, isn't it? It's a harvest where the Spirit of God would come and the church would go out and would harvest in. God would, through His church, by His Spirit, harvest in a people from every language and tribe and people and nation. There was a harvest that was happening. This is a fulfillment of that feast day. Pentecost is the Father keeping His promise to Christ to give Christ an inheritance among the nations. To give Him as his possession, the peoples of the earth, according to Psalms 2 and Psalms 110. Now let's read it again in light of this. Acts 2.1 gives the account. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, 50 days after the resurrection, they were all with one accord in, in one place. And suddenly there came a sound of heaven, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one set upon each of them. And they were, key word, all filled 
with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let's be really clear about something here. We're talking about languages, human ones, not angelic languages. This is human languages, ancient languages in that day. Verse 6 makes that very clear. Look at it. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation. At the sound of the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, We're not all these who are speaking Galileans. How do we hear that each in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, I don't know how to pronounce that, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. That right there is the beginning of missiology, of all missional enterprise. That is its origin. This is the beginning of, of obedience to the Great Commission. This is power from the Holy Spirit on all those gathered in the upper room. And this is, I will argue, the first of numerous Holy Spirit outpourings upon the church that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Now, just so you don't judge me wrongly or think I've come up with some, uh, something on my own here, I'll, I'll quote R.C. Sproul who said interestingly this, there are three more mini Pentecosts that continue to happen after this initial outpouring of the Spirit. So he's saying what many have said, Pentecost happened in Jerusalem, followed by other many Pentecosts after that, which seems to be what Jesus predicted. If we go back to Luke 24 and Acts 1, go wait in Jerusalem till you receive power, and then you will what? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the Gentile nations. And that's what the book of Acts is. Say, what is the book of Acts? Well, it's Jesus through his church by his Holy Spirit helping them fulfill the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is the the missionary movement happening in concentric circles, starting in Jerusalem and rippling outward. And so it starts in Jerusalem, moves into Judea, the surrounding region, going into Samaria, would be like Pensacola, Florida, or the northwest Florida, into Florida, into the United States, out into the world, right? This is happening from Jerusalem being the center point and moving out. But here's what I want us to notice. This outpouring of the Spirit is happening in distinct people groups, and it names four of them. Jews, Samaritans, God-fears, and Gentiles. I want to walk through those quickly. This is, this is important to understand Pentecost. So, Pentecost happens in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, the initial conversions were mainly Jewish. Then we see a movement into Samaria. This is in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Listen. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, chiefly, I think, through the missionary work of Philip, they sent Peter and John to them. So they hear the, the church in Jerusalem... This is the first church, the only church at this point, hears that 
people in Samaria are receiving the gospel, so they say, we need to check on this. Is, this. is this biblical? Is this legitimate? Let's send Peter and John to test what's going on in Samaria. And it says, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That's a, a mini Pentecost to the Samaritans. The the Spirit falling upon the Samaritans. They had already received the water baptism, but now they're getting this thing called baptism of the Spirit. That leads us to a new category in chapter 10 of Acts, uh, the God-fears. The God-fears are showing up in Acts 10. Uh, These are Hellenistic Greeks. Hellenistic Greeks. They had converted to Judaism. Uh, They believed in Yahweh. They embraced Judaism. They were in the Jewish community, kind of, minus circumcision. So they weren't really viewed fully as Jews, and they had a Hellenistic Greek background. So they're kind of a halfway community. And so in the early church, they're trying to figure out, what do we do with these God-fearers? What category do they go in? And then Acts 10, Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius and his household, And here's what we read in verse 44. While uh, Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those uh, who were circumcised believed and were astounded as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking with tongues and magnifying God. And listen to Peter's response. Peter goes, can anybody withhold water? It should not be. Uh, should not these be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they asked him to stay for some days. Now Peter goes and reports this in chapter 11, verse 15, to the church in Judea, and he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptizes water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so Peter's telling the church now, others are being included. This is not just a Jewish thing. Samaritans are being brought in. Gentiles are being brought in. Uh, The gospel is going forward. The Spirit of God is being poured out on these God-fears. That leads to a fourth category. You've got Jews, you've got Samaritans, you've got the God-fears, these Hellenistic Greeks, and then now we have the Gentiles. The Gentiles, the furthest from the kingdom... Those pagans, like us, we're Gentiles, Floridians, Americans. Uh, This is good news to us that it reaches this fourth category. Uh, Acts 19, we see a baptism of the Spirit upon the Ephesians. Uh, Verse 1, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Interesting question. They said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He said, then in what were you baptized? They said, in in John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. So do you see what's happening? Pentecost has happened in Jerusalem. You've now got a a mini Pentecost in Samaria. You've got a Pentecost with the God-fears, and you have a, a type of Pentecost with the Ephesian Gentiles. And think about these distinct groups. You have a fully Jewish group, first Pentecost, they get the Spirit, an almost Jewish Samaritan group, the Hellenistic Greek Jews without circumcision, which were God-fears, they get the Spirit, and then a fully pagan non-Jew group, the Gentiles, and then they get the Spirit. Everybody who's believing in Jesus is experiencing the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. And that is the hope for us today. uh, That the Gospel has continued to go forth and that others are being brought near. Um, There's a book, uh, I would recommend this to any of you who want to read more and understand more about the nature of revivals or Pentecost. Uh, It's called uh, Pentecost Today. It was written by Ian Murray. um, And his view of the book of Acts is really uh, what I'm teaching today, Um, but he says that Acts is a series of revivals that the church experienced as the gospel advanced into new and unreached areas. And his view accords with Martin Lloyd-Jones as well, who uh, I I stood in his pulpit a few weeks ago in London, uh, and and here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. It is quite certain that we should not be considering this now, that is talking about these Uh, things, were it not for the fact that God has continued to act. Men and women and their blindness and sin have done their very best to ruin the Christian church. If she were of our creation, she would have disappeared long ago, like many other institutions. People have misunderstood. They've gone wrong. They've preached error. The church would have died. So why is the church still here? There's only one answer. God comes in revival. God sends His Spirit again. Look at the Protestant Reformation. Just as God sent His Word to John the Baptist, He sent it to Martin Luther, giving him great spiritual power to awaken a great church with 15 centuries of tradition behind it. So all I'm saying is there's a great connection between Reformation and revival. These things are very similar, but listen to how Jonathan Edwards defines revival. It's only what God can do. It's the normal work of God done in a more compressed way. It's regular Christianity happening fast and with power. It's God doing, uh, it's God doing in a day what would happen in our ministry, uh, a lifetime of ministry. And so there's differences between Reformation and Revival, but largely those differences have to do with speed and the rate in which God revives His church. And, and church, we, we need this Edwardsian type of discernment today because I don't know about you, I hear reports of revivals happening every few years. You'll hear reports of the Spirit of God came on this place, the Spirit of God has come on this place, and we need discernment in these matters. We need great discernment on these matters. And, and uh, in college, I was studying these things for the first time. I came across 
uh, a book by Edwards, uh, a work by Edwards, when he, uh, who was experiencing the Great Awakening, wrote uh, Distinguishing Marks of the True Work of God. It's a much longer title than that. That's a little abridged title. Um, but he took 1 John chapter 4, and he laid out five marks, or we could call them five tests, to see if a, if a movement of the Spirit is of God or not. And I'll just read his points uh, to us. It says, it, it is true, it is a true work of God when it raises the esteem of professed converts for Jesus and seems to establish your minds in the truth of the gospel. It is true when the Spirit that is at work operates against the spirit of Satan's kingdom and encourage, encourages them to fight against sin. It is true when His Spirit operates to bring about a greater regard to the Scriptures and establish the more and, and the truth and origin of the Scriptures. It is true when the Spirit convinces them of those things that are true. And then fifth, it is true when that Spirit operates as a Spirit of love to God and man. And you can hear in those five, this is ordinary Christian work. These are ordinary Christian things. Whether it happened fast or slow, it doesn't matter. We need the centrality of the gospel to continue Christ be our center uh, hub in which everything centers. We need a higher view of Scripture, not just how we uh, believe in Scripture, but how we submit our lives to it. We need a greater hatred and repentance of sin, and we need a love for God and a love for others to be continually growing. And that's what started in Jerusalem. That's what's moving into these other nations as the gospel advances. And I want to just say, so this, in terms of the Gentiles, the Spirit falling on the Gentiles, it fell in Ephesus. And there's two things that Paul later writes to the church in Ephesus about the Holy Spirit that I want to draw our attention to. So in Ephesians 2.14... Listen to what Paul says to this church who experienced the little Pentecost. They had received the Spirit, but listen to what he says later to them in his epistle. Ephesians 2.14 He, that is God, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments that are expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are, new, uh, who are, who are near, Jews. Through him we both have access in one spirit. To the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And listen, in Him you, church, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is the Spirit that has taken us and taken the good news of the Gospel and all the inheritance that is for God's people and brought us and the Jews together. Uh, brought us into all the promises of God and into the favor of God. It is the Spirit that has done this and made one new people. 
Now, here's, here's something important that I don't want us to lose, and this may be the most important thing I could say the whole, uh, the whole morning. I think there's a great misunderstanding among Christians when it comes to the Spirit's work in Jesus' life. Um, I, I think many times we think about Jesus and we think about the life that He lived and we go, well, He was God. Of course He lived like that. And one of the great uh, developments, we could say, in how we understand the Scriptures related to Christ and the Spirit's work in His life happened during the days of the Puritans. They made progress in helping Christians think about how the Spirit works in Jesus, worked in Jesus' life. And none more than, than uh, John Owen, who said, Christ was fully man with an umbilical cord when He was born to an earthly mother. Yet as man, he moved like no other man because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And so most of the Puritans believed, and this teaching became the regular teaching about Christ and about the Holy Spirit's power on his life, is that what Christ did on earth, he did as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is very important. And then, and then it's emphasized at numerous points that Christ received a full measure of the Spirit. A full measure of the Spirit was in Christ when He was on this earth. And if we are empowered by that same Spirit, what are we not going to be doing? Crazy stuff. What are we going to be doing? Christ-like stuff. If we're empowered by the same Spirit that empowered Christ. Moses, I brought up Moses earlier, he was not resistant to the idea that some of the spirit that filled him for ministry would be distributed over to 70 others. He wasn't bothered by that. Listen, what is Pentecost? It's Christ who had a full measure of the spirit pushing his spirit into his people, distributing his spirit into his church. He is not trying to keep all of the Spirit to Himself. He says, it's better that I leave, that I can send my Spirit to you. And guys, I've taught this many, many times over the years. I'm going I'm to say it again. Actually, in, uh, in prayer a moment ago, we were, re- we were praying through Colossians 2, and there's a passage that, that I want to bring up. It says, in Him, that is in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. The Spirit of God fully filled Him. And you have been filled in Him. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. That may be simple to some of you. Some of you need to hear that and be reminded by that. That is a reality that is true. Here's what I want to remind us of. If believers at Pentecost already had all that they needed after they received that filling of the Spirit. Why in Acts 4.31 does it show those same people from Jerusalem being filled again with the Holy Spirit? They're filled again. They prayed and they cried out and it says they were filled again with the Holy Spirit. Why would that be if they were already filled with the Holy Spirit? They received more of what they already possessed, I would argue. 
if being filled to the Spirit was a constant experience of every Christian, you get saved, you get filled to the Spirit, you're always filled to the Spirit, perfectly, right to the top of the cup, every single moment of every day, if that's true, why would, for example, in Acts 6, when it talks about selecting uh, these certain men who would be servants of the church, and one of the qualifications it says is that they would be filled with the Spirit. Why say that if every Christian already is filled with the Spirit? Why make it a part of a qualification? Unless it's something distinct. If every Christian was full of the Holy Spirit, why would this be part of the qualification at all? Listen to what the larger catechism of the Westminster says. Question 182. While the Holy Spirit is given to all Christians, His working is not in all persons, nor at all times in the same measure. I'm not saying anything that isn't uh, consistent with a very, very non-charismatic position on the Spirit. When you receive the Spirit, you can also receive more of the Spirit, greater fillings of the Spirit after conversion. In other words, let me put it as simple as I know how to put it. We are all baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion. But after that, we can receive greater and continued measures of the Spirit in our life. And I would argue we must. We must. Every week at the end of the service, and I'll I'll continue to do this, we've done this for 15 years, we pray a prayer from Ephesians 3, or I pray a prayer, the benediction prayer. And notice the words of this prayer. These are Paul's words for the church in Ephesus, by the way. He said that that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why would you pray that if everybody already is strengthened with power in their spirit and their inner being? Why pray that? Verse 18, that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, length, width, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with what? All the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ever ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be the glory. And church, I want this so bad for you. Because I understand the things that you have to do this week, in your marriage, in your jobs, in your lives, in the fight against sin, you can't do in the flesh. And some of you have grieved the Spirit of God to such an extent in your lives. Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you approaching this week in the power of the Holy Spirit? It's something worth assessing. The Scripture does say to walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And why be commanded to walk in the Spirit if you always walk in the Spirit as a Christian? I would submit that we do not always walk in the power of the Holy Spirit or we would not be commanded to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit lest we walk according to the flesh. Brothers and sisters, the the Holy Spirit is a person. Don't ever forget that. He's a person. And just as the Scripture says that we are to abide in Christ, Abide in Christ. We are to abide in the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are to walk with the Spirit. 
Every Christian will bear fruits of the Spirit, but not everyone will bear the same measure of fruit. Does not Jesus say that some will bear 30, some 60, and some 100-fold? Are there not distinctions in those who all possess the Holy Spirit? And I would argue that is largely dependent on your prayers and on the amount of holiness in your life to the degree in which you will bear fruit for God. It is true, brothers and sisters. And, and I want you to avail yourself of it. We're about to start a series on marriage uh, starting next week. And um, I truly believe that that's the great need in marriages. We need to hear teaching. But we need the Spirit of God to help us to love our spouses. To help us to submit our lives to His Word. Uh, We are always desperately in need. I'll close with this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, The world was turned upside down, not because of what they did, but because of what God did to them, in them, and by means of them. And church, may He continue uh, to work His powerful Spirit in and through us for His glory. Let's go ask the Lord for these things Let's prepare ourselves as we go to the table. Uh, for those of you who are new, as we, as we get ready to come to the table, I would just remind you that according to our understanding of Scripture, uh, this table is, those, is for those who have believed the Gospel, who have been filled with the Spirit, and who have been baptized. And so if that's you, please join us. And I'll just say to you believers, uh, there is spiritual strength here for you. We talk about spiritual power. There is spiritual power at the table if you come by faith. You remember what Christ has done for you. You go to Him as the risen Savior. Uh, Avail yourself of that today at the table. Let's pray. Father, we are very, very weak. I am very weak. I don't have what I need to approach the week ahead. But I do have it in Christ. And I do have it in that Spirit that You've given. And so Father, by that Spirit that You've given, would You strengthen us? Lord, would You help us to believe Your promises? Would You help us to submit our lives to Your Word? And would You supernaturally enable us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? To abound in love and good works? to deny self and take up our cross and follow You. Lord, we ask for a reviving and for a strengthening by Your Holy Spirit, even today, Lord. Lord, as we come to the table, we thank You and we proclaim Your death until You come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.